Oh no, the big 4-0! Welcome to episode 40 of Eastern Promise. I'm Mike Rigby, your host and guide to the full potential of the East of England. This week, we're bringing you trains, brains and milling machines... The Great Eastern Promise train event continues to discuss the importance of connections with Norwich and the view from Cambridge, all from the not inconsiderable comfort of the 1127 out of Norwich. We'll also pay a visit to Condimentum on the Food Enterprise Park near Norwich, talk to CEO Dave Martin and take a tour of the factory, where Dave will tell us much more about Condimentum's thoroughly modern milling. And finally, I hear your confessions of guilty pleasures found in the east of England. Prepare for absolution in this week's Crowd Sorcery. Regular listeners will recall that Eastern Promise recently rode the region's rails in association with the Norwich Research Park, Ridgen Partners LLP and Carter Jonas to celebrate the links between Cambridge and Norwich. Last week, a panel of rail industry experts and local authority officials shared their belief in the importance of the Cambridge-Norwich route and set out a potential route map to improved services and rejuvenated stations. This week, I'm delighted to share the next panel, focused on the business links between the two cities and introduced by yours truly. Welcome to our, our business roundtable. Um, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you here. You introduce yourself, the guru. The guru, oh dear. I, I knew everything at the, uh, at the nearly everything at the Chamber of Commerce. Absolutely. And you are? I'm Nova Fairbank, I'm the Chief Executive for Norfolk Chambers. Who else? Uh, morning, William Rook. Uh, I'm a partner at Carter Jonas in Cambridge. Uh, we're a property consultancy. And we have you to thank for, the, for, for looking after us when we get to Cambridge, which is we're really grateful for. And Nigel Cushion, uh, founder of Nelson Spirit. We are leadership mentoring. Absolutely. You are, I, I think I've described you in the past as the historian of human leadership, which a lot of people seem to say is very apt. A true guru. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Take any you give us. Now, Nova, start with you. What, what is the value of the Cambridge-Norwich corridor to businesses in Norfolk? It gives us diversity, it gives us opportunity, um, it shows the level of collaboration we can have between the different areas in the, re uh, in the East. As, as a region, we often get overlooked, they only see Cambridge, but actually Cambridge is very much supported by all of the regions around it. Norfolk is an amazing place with some amazing businesses in it. We have brilliant um, universities, um, first class research, world leading in life sciences, 
agri-tech, we have an all-energy coast, so actually we really should be looking to work together for the benefit of the whole region. Absolutely. William, what's the view from Cambridge? Um, because we hear a lot about the Oxcam arc um, and where that is, we, we, we do not know. Perhaps you can enlighten us maybe. Uh, and in coming as I do from the world of politics initially, uh, it, it, Cambridge sometimes come, is, is characterised as, a, as, a, as a, a walled citadel, if you like. So what, what's, what's your view of, of, of the, 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 the corridor? Well, it's interesting that you say that, Mike, because if you live if in Cambridge and you work in Cambridge, you sometimes see Norwich as being a bit at the end of the road. And I think that's the wrong perception. So you've got a walled insular city view from Norwich looking back, and then we're looking up going, well, that's the end of the road. But that's the wrong way to look at it, isn't it? There's a lot going on between Cambridge and Norwich, and there's a lot of crossover between the two cities. And it really feels like there's untapped potential there. I mean, if you look at the two universities, for example, University of East Anglia, University of Cambridge, they've both got great graduate retention rates. And let's try and cross-pollinate. Let's make these guys, let's talk to each other. Let's unlock skills. It's about thought leadership. It's about peer-to-peer -peer knowledge sharing. And that's something that, as the two regions, we can do very well. I, I often think of it, uh, I've come to think of it like a, like a rope that's made up of lots of strands. There are lots of individual projects connecting Norwich and Cambridge. And it's, I think a lot of we need to weave that into something a lot stronger, a lot, a lot more durable. Nigel, you are, uh, uh, you've a very keen sense of the history of these relationships and uh, you're a very regular user of the route we're on right now. What's, what's your take? Yeah, well, um, born in Norwich, love Norwich um, and I love Cambridge. So this, this, is a, this is a great treat for me. This is like a you know, birthday treat, you know, a day out. Um, yeah, interesting. And this is in the new economy we all face, which is the global economy. I think it's now opening up fantastic opportunities. Um, I come down to Cambridge at least twice a month. It's a fantastic trip on the train. It works really well. Um, I've got uh, mentees in Norfolk, but uh, I've got a couple of mentees in London, and they come up from London, and we meet in Cambridge, and it works really, really well. Going back uh, five years ago, wouldn't have got that work, you know. Now we meet in Cambridge. It works well for both of us, and uh, and they do great Chelsea buns. So uh, another advantage. <laughs> well, we've, we've we've just had on the rail panels a very interesting conversation. Uh, which I don't know if, how much you've know, heard you sat just across the way from us, but about the, the potential of the route. And the, the, it, it's not just about the train or the station, it's about the, 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 the economic benefits that spill out from that. I mean, if you look at just something like Cambridge North and uh, pre-pandemic, the entries and exits almost doubled from its in the year after its opening, which is, which is incredible. Um, just talk briefly about investment zones, which is a, a big thing that the, the current government uh, whenever you're listening to this in the future, the, the current government of Liz Truss has, has, has announced, and, and Norfolk and Suffolk are very much at the, in the vanguard of that. Um, I start with Nora as I go around the, the, the table. What's, what's, your, what's your take on what that's going to unlock? Is it still uncertain or is it. It's all about opportunity. My understanding is the investment zones will simplify things like planning. It gives us another string to actually attract further investment into the region. If you look at the diversity of the business community across the eastern region, then the opportunity to grow the economy, to contribute further to UK PLC, is only going to be supported and benefited by having an investment zone. William, the it, it, it's, it's fairly common knowledge that obviously Cambridge has a green belt and perhaps you could just talk briefly about what uh, that, the impact that has on, and we know that there's a, a shortage of lab space, 
that's incredible. The demand is far, far outstripping supply. To a lesser extent, the same is true as office space, which is obviously you're interested in both of these things. Is something like an investment zone, is that going to sort of turn, turn Cambridge's attention when it's so close to say, aha, well, we may be sort of landlocked. So, so one, of the, one of the things with Cambridge is that it is an internationally recognised city for investment in life sciences and tech. And I think one of, the, one of the advantages of working closely with Norwich is that we can start to spread the investment that's coming into Cambridge up the line towards Norwich. And we don't need the government to do that for us. I mean, Cambridge has got a lot of entrepreneurial companies spinning out of the university in the same way that Norwich has. And if we start to work together more closely, we can capitalise on that joint knowledge pool uh, and help help build, you know, develop better uh, better infrastructure. I mean, what's from your point of view? Before I just come on to Nigel, what's the what's the impact of that green belting? Because we hear a lot about it, we assume that it's sort of a a bit of a noose, a green noose around Cambridge's neck. But what is the real impact? Real impact is that there is not enough land to co- accommodate the, the amount of pipeline demand that's coming into the city. Sorry, Nev, you want to jump in? But that's where the uh, A11 corridor Indeed. and the Cambridge-Norwich Tech corridor comes in. There's an opportunity for Cambridge to spread beyond their green belts, for Norwich to meet them in the middle, and you look at the businesses that are coming up along there. There's so much opportunity that we can put together based on the infrastructure we've already got. So we're already sat on a brilliant service with the trains and the rail that's only going to improve if we can unlock things like the Hawley Junction and the Ely Junctions, and obviously I'm from Norfolk, I want the Trouse um, Swing Bridge sorted as well. But you then look at the duelling of the A11 and the opportunity that's already created, the land down that route we need to look at for investment because that absolutely links Cambridge and Norwich and it allows Cambridge to spread outside of their green belt and it allows Norwich to really spread further down. So the, the synergy between the two regions is, is huge, the opportunity is massive. Uh, Nigel, as the, very much the custodian of someone, of the, the, the legacy of a man who knew all about seizing and taking opportunities, how, we, we've heard a lot on the previous panel about partnership working and, 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 and same, same again here, how do, how do we go about forming them and making them successful and seizing the opportunities that are before us? Well, I think we're doing that today. It's, it's about meeting people. Um, thank you, thank you, Mike. Um, I think I think I think the man you're alluding to is Nelson, and I, I think his uh, I think his commentary would be, "Don't wait for the Admiralty." You know, if we, we we've got good ships, we've got good people. Let's get closer. Let's work together, and let's make it happen. I, I agree with William. You know, I think it's um, there can be a bit of a victim mentality of kind of waiting for the government to kind of do stuff. You know, and I think we've got so many fantastic businesses in in Norfolk and in Cambridgeshire. Uh, let's work together and let's take our initiative to the government you know and let and let's let's tell them what we need absolutely i mean i'm a, I'm a very big advocate and i've asked this question a lot of times of people like george freeman mp uh, and i'll be asking the same when i talk to daniel zeichner uh, next month the cambridge mp which is what are the levers that are in our hands that we don't wait for whitehall we don't wait we can arrange these things for ourselves and a lot of that will be hopefully unlocked in the city deal however that ends up looking but what what levers uh, are in our hands for businesses and what would you like levers would you like to see handed over to us if i can torch the metaphor yet further the biggest lever we can pull is to start shouting about the brilliance of the region. We are too good at not saying very much about how good we are. Cambridge is a prime example of what can be done when you actually 
talk the region up, talk the opportunity up. As a business community, we are very good at going, it's all right, we'll just be quiet, we're over here. Actually, we should be totally shouting about our place, really put Norfolk on the map. I mean, this is this is a really good example of again when I was I was in Cambridge and the the, the interview I've just put out with a chap called Sam Goddard, a company called Labmotive. They do sort of remote software for sensors for uh, infrastructure, water. Um, and I sort of he's one of these businesses quietly doing trading globally, all over the world. And what I asked him, what are your connections? What conversations are you having within the region? Oh, not that many, really. And it's we're looking at we're looking at this as a kind of Norwich does this, Cambridge does this, Ipswich does that. You know, you can bring other cities into it, but really we should look at it as we're one region, we're a single cluster. So we should be moving as one, not trying to pull in different directions. Each city's got its own specialities. Norwich with the plant science and the green agritech. Cambridge has got more of the biotech, the pharma. But there's no reason why those can't be seen as they should be competing. They should be working together. Norwich, sorry, I was going to say Norwich has got the with Norwich Research Park, for example, and UEA you've already got the capabilities there to be able to grow. Absolutely, and the land to grow it on. Absolutely, and we've got, you know, we've got, uh, we've got the land to say house uh, people who, who are looking at Cambridge uh, house prices and, and going a bit pale, uh, especially now, and, um, and, and thinking, uh, well, actually, we've got services like this. We're about, I think, we're, where are we arriving? Thetford, I think. And, uh, you know, this is a perfect place on which to ju jump on the train. And, and, you know, you, you're in Cambridge very quickly and you've, especially with Cambridge North and Cambridge South coming up online, you've got phenomenal access then to Cambridge. Yeah, you've got, you've got Heffel Innovation Park as well on well, near here. Uh, you've got that there, 11 Corridor. Wyndham's got its own business parks as well. So it's not just named Norwich and Cambridge. You've got a number of towns along that route who can benefit from joined, joined up approach. You, look, you can look at Snetterton. All of that's coming through as well. So there's a huge opportunity. If you drive down the A11 corridor, you're already seeing the logistics companies coming in because they're seeing the benefit of that, that key route in, in and out of two very big centres. I know in your last round of conversations, you were talking about the fact that the majority of freight comes into our region. So our transport links are really important uh, to our future opportunities. But equally so, it's that collaboration piece. It's allowing the businesses to talk. I mean, it's, it's Norfolk Chamber's prime mission, connecting, supporting, giving voice to every business. That's all about collaboration. It's all about working together for the good of the region. I'd just like to pick up the point about, uh, about confidence. Um, uh, last year, I did some work in Canada, and we were talking about you know, um, business across, across, across the Commonwealth. And um, uh, you know, Britain was mentioned, and uh, where do you come from? You know, and, I, and I was trying to describe where I came from, and people went, okay, yeah, yeah, Norwich, Cambridge, yeah, they're, they're great places to do business in. So this was the pers perspective from the Commonwealth. Yeah. You know? And often I, I pick up Nova's point there about kind of, maybe we should have a bit more confidence about yeah. who we are and what we're about, and actually work together with that confidence. The other point I'd make is, I love the idea that you introduced, Mike, of unlocking the door. You know, with government. And government, one of government's habits, all governments, are they have a door and there's a key, and then we have to fight over who has the key. Yeah. You know? So actually, the answer is we all work together and unlock the door together. Mm. I think, from, from my, again, from my experience, that there is, there is a, a, a desire in central government to be presented with things that, that you know, address their policy issues. And, and we, we, we want to be able to support things, but we, you know, there's, 
as you say, I think there is a lack of confidence. I've, I've seen this, this this before, where we've sort of gone so far, but kind of almost lost our collective nerve in terms of bidding for improvements. Your other challenge on, on bidding into government for funding to make improvements is it tends to be quite short term. For the majority of the business community, they're looking for certainty, they're looking for stability, and something that you've got to, to put together and bid for in, in a space of a, a very short uh, piece of time and deliver in the next six months to a year is not always going to be where the business community is going to see the benefit. They're looking for something that's going to give you 5, 10, 15, 20. 20 years longevity because then that gives the business community further confidence to put more investment in themselves rather than just that little bit of funding. It's not all about getting funding from central government. We have to do things for ourselves. We would see national funding as pump priming the opportunity, but it's got to be a longer term opportunity to give businesses the confidence to invest further. How, William, would you advise uh, Norwich and Norfolk, uh, Suffolk and, and, uh, and Ipswich as well to an extent, how would you advise them to start the process or, or so up-tempo on the process of engagement uh, and sort of, you know, sometimes it feels like a bit of a, uh, 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 Cambridge feels like a debutante at a ball <laughs> and it's, it's got its dance card of partners from Oxford and, Edinburgh and, and all over the world and, and, the, uh, and uh, Norfolk and Suffolk feel like they're in the corner sort of really nervously, uh, you know, Working up their courage to come and <laughs> speak for yourself, Mike. Oh, well, that's, I'm, 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 come on, confidence, project, project. Back to my days as a law. It does come back to this issue of confidence. I think Nigel's got a point, you know, because Cambridge, um, the ecosystem that's there, the city physically isn't big enough to hold it. What, what you know, the, the growth potential that it's got. So where do you look outside? Let's take life science as an example. I'm sorry to keep coming back to that, but it's really popular in Cambridge. Very fashionable subject. A lot of demand, but they can't. Um, um, they can't design, um, test, and produce these um, the, the work they're doing in Cambridge. It needs to be spread into the wider region. So, for example, if you take a pharmaceutical trial, they will uh, the, the scientists that are working on those drugs will come up with a solution. But then want to test it, and then they want to produce it. They can't produce it in Cambridge. So they look outside, and they don't want to be in China or in Poland or anywhere else. They want to be you know, an hour away. So if you look at that as an example, an hour of Cambridge takes in quite a lot of space where currently there's untapped resource, untapped potential and if you hit you know, Norwich at the other end of the line it's well placed to draw on that, you know, that ecosystem and drawing it out in this direction. Well what I'm hearing loud and clear from this conversation is, is some of my favourite words which I come back to time and again opportunity, potential, confidence Nigel, I, 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 forgive me, I, I don't know if I've already sort of asked you to this. How do we go about boosting that confidence? You, you know, uh, we've talked about seizing the opportunity, but it's, if it's confidence is the issue, how would we all, I mean, we'll go round and round just as a... As well, I, I, I think confidence is, is infectious, as, as enthusiasm is. And if you meet people who are doing great work, and there's people doing great work in businesses and in charities and in public service all over, when you meet people who are doing great work, you get confidence because they inspire you. So it's about bringing people together and actually including people. I think one of the dangers of engaging government, you tend to have some traditional bodies who do it and they do it well, but we don't tend to carry everybody with us. You know? And there's huge bit number of businesses all over the eastern region who kind of not involved in the conversation. They're not included. You know? So by including everybody, bringing everybody with us, 
getting people to meet each other, getting people to be inspired. This is a great day because we're meeting people we've never met before. And we go, wow, you're doing that. And that you makes you feel good. It makes you feel proud to be part of the adventure. And then your next, com your next conversation is, how can we help? How can we help you do what you do? And suddenly the game has raised. If you look at what they did in Silicon Valley, it was all about co-location. It's about bringing brilliant people together, investors, architects, designers, engineers. They work next to each other and they inspire each other. If you're in a place on your own at home, difficult to be inspired. If you meet inspiring people, that's how we do it. Well, you can't top that. Thank you, Nova Fairbank, Chief Executive of Norfolk Chambers of Commerce, William Rook, Carter Jonas, and our host later on today, Nig the legendary Nigel Cushion of Nelson Spirit. Thank you ever so much. I've really enjoyed it. It's, I'm, I'm feeling that confidence now. <laughs> Nigel, thank you very much. And happy birthday. Thank you very much. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well done. Huge thanks go to Nova Fairbank, Chief Executive of Norfolk Chambers of Commerce, partner at Carter Jonas, William Rook, and Chief Executive of Nelson Spirit, Nigel Cushion. Last week, legend of the East Anglian agri-food industry, Clark Willis MBE, showed us around the Food Enterprise Park. This week, we're going to take a closer look at the keystone tenant of the park, Condimentum. Coleman's Mustard is the quintessential Norfolk brand. However, when Makers Unilever and neighbour Britvik put the Carrow Works in Norwich up for sale in 2018, the future of mustard milling in Norfolk was thrown into serious doubt. For a while, there was a risk that Coleman's mustard would no longer be milled and packed in Norfolk. However, thanks to a foresighted growing community and a multinational consumer goods company willing to take a punt, Coleman's mustard is still milled and placed into those iconic yellow tins on the Food Enterprise Park here in the east of England. I met with CEO of Condimentum Dave Martin, to find out more about this extraordinary story. It's really lovely to be here at Condimentum. It is a fantastic facility, and I haven't even seen it yet. I already know that for a fact. And we're here with Dave Martin, who's the CEO of Condimentum. Dave, welcome to Eastern Promise. You're an incredibly busy man. Thank you so much for your time. And we're in good company because you've had the BBC coming in, you've had Channel 4 coming in, looking at what you do. Uh, what do you think the draw is is for these people? Do you know? I think I think the more we the more we progress with the business, Mike, the more I, I realise that this is this is a really fascinating story, and and I think it's also a um, it's also quite given the world events and the disruption globally, and you know the global marketplace principles are being challenged for the first time. I think you know everybody's been uh, talking about you know there's only one marketplace now, it's global. And then all of a sudden we have you know the ever given issue in, in the Suez Canal and we have container prices you know quadrupling um, and uh, you know congestion in ports. And I think the model that we have here, which is a you know we are a grower back business. You know, we have the original objective of this business was to was to allow the growers to move beyond the agricultural expertise that they they clearly offer to 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 expand that to take responsibility 
for the manufacturing elements and the conversion of products into, into finished products or to semi-finished product. And I think this whole local, you know, the, the local supply chain, this, this what we call in the trade the vertically integrated structure, we have what's effectively a de-risked compressed supply chain, which means that we can talk direct with the growers about the products that we need, the ingredients that we need, they can set aside the land and the acreage that we need to support the demand. So that, that responsiveness and that agility that we, uh, we can offer, I think, is really becoming really quite interesting. And I'm saying a lot of it is driven by the, the global disruption that, uh, that, we, that we hear about you know, day in, day out. I mean, one of the things I really find fascinating about Condimentum is, is the story. That, I mean, we're on the food, en the food enterprise park just to the southwest of Norwich. And it's a, one of a really exciting places that's, that's growing, no pun intended, at an incredible rate. I went on a, I'm going on a comedy, I'm actually on a comedy, stand-up comedy course at the moment <laughs> to hopefully work the jokes a little better. But, yeah. but what I love about Condimentum is the fantastic story that ostensibly started in something not so great, which is the, the Unilever plant at um, the Carrow Works closing down. But from that, you get a, a huge multinational behaving okay in what they see as a rational sense, but not. They follow it up by behaving not like you'd expect them to. Um, tell us the story, because I'm waffling on now, but just tell us how it all came about. Yeah, it's quite an interesting start to this, actually, Mike, because we had, um, I received a call from a, a chairman of mine back, going back to April 2016. And he'd been talking with a chap called Michael Sly. Michael Sly is the chairman of the English Mustard Growers. Uh, the English Mustard Growers is a cooperative of, of, of growers, uh, 18 strong. So there are 18 English Mustard Growers, and they grow a vast majority of, 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 of the total UK uh, mustard production. Um, and yes, Michael had this idea. He was keen to protect the future, to, to give the, the growers and the cooperative more of a control of, of their own destiny, effectively. And, and one of the things that he was concerned about is whilst he was you know, very proud of the relationship that they had with this, you know, this brand, this you know, iconic brand of Coleman's, he was also uh, you know, conscious of the fact that it was a single customer. Um, and he was really keen to explore the possibility of uh, investing in a manufacturing facility that that, as I say, allowed the growers to retain the, the agricultural responsibility, but also to, to absorb uh, the, the manufacturing control, which then would potentially bring in new customers. So beyond Unilever, which would start to, to, to spread the, uh, the, the risk, if you like, in terms of, in terms of a, a supply to, to more than one customer. And I think that idea really excited me. I'm, my background is very much operations. You know, I've spent 30 years you know, uh, building and running factories. So it, it kind of all come together nicely. So w when I sat about writing a business plan for, for, the, for the idea and then presented it to Michael and the, and the grower groups, we, we all, you know, I can remember the meeting, we all got quite excited about the prospect. But from that point on, it was really about engaging with Unilever and to, um, to, to sell the idea. And, and there was a huge, you know, leap of faith required from, from the Unilever, uh, the brand owners of, of Coleman's at Unilever. It was, it was a pretty significant leap of faith for them because it took a huge amount of trust. And fortunately for, for, for me and, and for the grower groups, 
there was a significant amount of trust already there based upon generations of of of, uh, of trading relationship. I mean, the growers, some of the growers' families go back generations in terms of the supply of, of, of the raw material, whether it be mustard seed or fresh mint leaf, into the um, the Carroll Road facility, the Unilever uh, Coleman's facility just down the road here. So once we realised Unilever were keen and were interested in the possibility of a grower-backed uh, business, and then it was pretty much you know about making sure that we you know we progress, we keep, we we maintain the momentum of the project, and and as you say, um, you know the, the sort of negative news and all this was there was an announcement that Briffick intended to exit the site. And it's a huge site. It's a 50-acre site just uh, within Norwich. And 25 acres was uh, owned by Unilever, the other 25 by Briffick. And it was pretty clear then that Unilever couldn't justify maintaining the whole site, the whole 50-acre site, just, just with the Coleman's product. So that, that provided a significant amount of you know, additional momentum to the project to the point where we, it was really quite, quite a fast-track um, 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 opportunity at that point. So what we then did was that we then um, arranged joint project teams uh, between Unilever and the Condimentum team, um, and we, uh, we worked through a, a, a plan together to design the factory, to, um, to agree on the scope of the, whole, the overall project, to agree on the timings of, of uh, to first production, and, and, and kind of pretty much everything else is history from there because it was, uh, as I say, it was pretty much a fast track project on the basis that, you know, we had to fit in with their transition to their other factories. So they, they gave us the date that they were going to close the gates and we had to make sure that this brand new state of the art facility that you're sitting in today was up and ready and running uh, for first production to meet the timings of the, uh, of the overall Unilever project. So it was quite a, you know, as I say, a, an intense period. Um, but I'd, I'd like to think now that we've, we've built something that we're all really proud of. We've got a great team here. Some of the, um, some of the, the Unilever uh, team have uh, transferred over to Condimentum and had huge amounts of experience and wow. value and talent. Uh, some uh, are new recruits to the area. So, so we've kind of got a really nice sort of team here, which is, uh, you know, which is really what the most important thing is the team. I mean, it's lovely to see the facility and all of the state-of-the-art equipment, but the bottom line is the success that we're seeing today is largely down to the great team that we've got here. With you, yourself, in a leadership role, obviously you and I have come from a similar part of the country, separated only by the East Lanks Road. <laughs> um, what brings you... I mean, you, you talked about how Michael Sly got in touch with you, and, and obviously he, he, he knew the right man to call. Tell us a bit about your background and, and what it was that you saw in this project. Yeah, I mean, my, my background is very much um, operations. I've, I, I love factory environments. I've, I've been in the, in the food, food industry now for over 30 years. Um, I've worked in the UK and abroad. And, you know, I've worked on some pretty exciting projects and also for some, some pretty impressive companies here, blue chip companies. Um, and when Michael first approached me about this and, and I started to, uh, to write the business plan, um, as I say, I got more and more excited about the possibility of what we could build here. Um, I, I was you know, really taken aback by how much support we had locally to retrain Coleman's of Norwich. I mean, it would have been, you know, it just is, is not right to think that the Coleman's of Norwich, you know, could, could be made anywhere else other than Norfolk. So we had a huge amount of, of, of local support and, and, and emotional support to, to the project. And... Um, and I just think that this is, you know, this is one of only three 
super fine mustard mills in the world. I mean, I, I've, I've, a lot of my background is in milling. I spent 15 years with a company called Quaker Oats. Uh, so I, I, I thought at the time I knew a bit about milling and tips, but you know, wheat and, and uh, wheat and oats milling is very <laughs> different to mustard milling. And, and I kind of realized that now. But at the time when Unilever said, you know, we'd like you to build a, a, a super fine mill, um, we, we didn't have many reference points because mustard milling is, is very niche. It's a, it's, a, it's a product that has a really high oil content. So it'll be over 40% oil. And compare that to the oil content of wheat at 4 or 5% and the oil content of, of, of oats at, say, 8 or 9%. That m means that the, 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 the milling of, of this product is, is really quite specialised. And I couldn't, at the time, figure out why there were only two other super fine mustard mills globally. There is one in North Dakota and there's another one in Ontario and Canada. And, um, and, I, and I, I can tell you now, I, I fully understand why they're only two. It's, it is, without trying to overcomplicate the, uh, the process, it's, it's, it's quite a difficult thing. We've got to, from a very small mustard seed, we've got to try and extract around about 82% of flour from that seed. So we remove the other 18% is effectively the bran, the husk, that we, that, we, that we remove as part of the milling process. Um, but it was a fascinating challenge. One, to, to build this, uh, this super fine mill. When I thought at the time, well, you know, I know this is, a, a, this is a specific milling process, but why don't Unilever just invest in a simple grinding process? A simple, a simple grinding mill would have been a tenth of the price for the start and, and a significantly less complex. And, and, and it, was, it became clear after discussions and meetings with Unilever that the superfine process delivers the taste and the texture, which is synonymous with the Coleman's, um, the Coleman's product. I mean, it's, it's this pungency, it's this heat that's generated from this superfine flour, which, is, which makes the Coleman's product pretty unique. And I, I kind of technically understand now that the finer the flour, the finer the particle size, the, the more of this enzyme is released. There's an enzyme called myrosinase. The more that's released, the more pungency, the more heat that's delivered in, in the product. So uh, the super fine process that we have here, which is the only one in Europe, uh, which we're really quite proud of, delivers that unique texture and taste that is, as I say, synonymous with Coleman's mustard. And, um, and I felt that was a real challenge. As I say, my, my background is very much food, it's operations, um, I, I say a, a lot in milling, but this was going to be a challenge that uh, that I was I was really you know looking forward to and excited about. Um, we we had within the scope of the overall project the need to make mint sauce, and some of the volumes here that we're producing are also pretty exciting. I mean, we'll produce we'll process around two thousand tons of mustard seed every year. We produce just short of two thousand tons of. Um, of, uh, of mint source solution, which is, uh, which is again sourced locally from the mint farms, uh, just uh, no more than an hour away or so. So I think the whole, um, the whole project, the scope of it, the involvement with the growers, that all together, Mike, was, was really quite exciting for yeah. me. And, you know, I, I was at the time of the call from, uh, you know, from Michael Sly was, was living in Berkshire. And um, I, you know, brought my wife up to, uh, to Norfolk as, uh, one day when I was, had some meetings at Unilever and she spent the whole day walking around the city. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, I, you know, we, we met at the Maidshead Hotel and, and, uh, and she said, 
we've, we've got to move it. I mean, there's a, there's a fantastic vibe within Norwich. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and again, the, the, the project itself was always going to be a long-term project for me. And um, I've signed up to a, you know, a, 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 a quite a significant uh, contract that, that will keep me in Norfolk for a very long time. And I'm very happy with that as well, because it's a, it's a beautiful place to live, but it's also the opportunity that we have here to significantly grow this business. And we've acquired five acres overall. This, yeah. this site that you're sitting on now is three acres. We have the opportunity to expand. So we really built this operation with future proofing in mind. So we really would like to, to, to grow beyond where we are today. And we see that the opportunities, certainly in the short and medium term, are, are there for us to do that. I think, the, 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 you know, when I've heard American interviews, there's a phrase and they, they go, boom, there it is. Yeah. And I can't carry it off, but there we go. Okay, so. Right, we're standing outside, we're looking at the condimentum plant, we've got the, the 60, 60 foot, did you say? Yes, the 60, 60 foot uh, milling tower to our left. Tell us more, Dave, where are, we, where are we heading first? Right, okay, it's probably best just to take you through the flow of ingredients. As we receive the ingredients in from the farm, you, in fact, fortunately, you can see a, a vehicle already here that is bringing in around about 25,000 kilos of mustard seed. So the truck will um, pull into the Weybridge it will then reverse into what we call the intake, um, uh, the intake building. From there, the 25,000 kilos of mustard seed are then elevated through to one of three silos. It's go, it either goes into a white mustard seed silo, a brown mustard seed silo, or a Canadian mustard seed silo. Right. From there, what's really important about the milling process is the, the moisture control. So when it comes in off the farmer's field, it's around about 9% moisture. From there, we need to, to, to dry the mustard seed down to around about 3% moisture. And we do that by that huge unit there. That looks, that's a drying unit. So we'll dry the product down to 3%. That's the optimum moisture level to extract the maximum amount of flour from the seed. Right. Once it's been dried, it goes into the mill building, and that's really where the magic happens. That's what I'll take you through in a second. So Absolutely. Once the, the product has been milled into a superfine flour, it then comes into this part of the building here, which is a uh, blending and packing, um, a blending and packing building, and then it's packed off to be sent off to uh, the customer, whether it be Unilever or any of our other customers yeah. at that point. Brilliant. Shall we go inside? Crack on. Yeah, sure. Well, you were the first tenant on the Food Enterprise Park, which is which, which is where we are. And at the moment, I'm. This is going to make me sound very, more, far more intellectual than I am, but. I'm reading a book on um, uh, an American economics professor is looking into her T-shirt, basically. She was challenged by one of her students, who makes your T-shirts, eh, eh? So she said, well, I'll find out then. And, she, and the part of the book I'm on at the moment is when she's gone out to Texas to look at the cotton farmers out there in West Texas. And she's describing the virtuous circle. I'm drawing a circle with my hands, she can't see that, but um, a virtuous circle between the actual growers the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the, Tex the, the Texan, um, Texas Tech, the Texan universities yeah, and yeah. colleges and, you know, local tech innovators to actually make the market work for them and, you know, really make themselves the, the, the hub of the global cotton industry. Um, how, you've got, I know that John Innes had a lot to do with Sort of saving, saving. You know, the, one of the brands of mustard seeds. I don't know if that's they. They did actually. Yeah, yeah. in the early yep. early twenty first yep. century. Yep. 
um, when that was sort of the yields were really dropping. But how how has that been for you so far? With you got the research park and John Innes and here and and how do you see it developing in the future? Because it, it, to me, it's a really exciting um, you know it's a really exciting set of ingredients. Uh, that's a very good question, actually, Mike, because I, um, I believe that we have a huge opportunity to, um, to become a, a proper centre of excellence globally for mustard and condiments generally. I mean, we, we've already, um, they're actually, believe it or not, our mustard sommeliers. I mean, we, we feel we need to, that absolutely is true. I and mean, we're, we're, we're potentially investigating the, you know, the possibility of, of our own. So we want to do, we want to be the go-to centre of excellence for all things mustard. There's lots of varieties of mustard. There's lots of potential uses as a, um, it's a high protein, high fibre ingredient. Um, that has, uh, you know, say, huge potential uses. We're already talking to a bakery company now about the use of mustard as a potential antifungal shelf life extender. So it's a natural rather than a synthetic shelf life extender. Um, we we believe it's it's good in, as I say in terms of you know potential replacement for, for meat proteins. So we, we're investigating other uses. There is a possibility that we can. We can the, the the enzyme I talked to you about before. Yes, I was going to ask we, you about the we enzyme. Can, we can take that we can potentially knock out that myrosinase, which delivers that heat and that pungency and that really strong mustard taste, and we can turn mustard flour into a high protein, gluten free, functional flour. Yeah. I mean that is quite a, a, an exciting opportunity. So we do believe that we've got you know lots of opportunities to 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 develop markets that that currently do not exist today. In mustard, and I think you know you mentioned before about the the, the John Innes Centre. We have a fantastic opportunity with the research centre, literally five minutes down the road, to really start to develop this on a collaborative basis. There is a huge amount of strength and depth from a scientific a scientific perspective, just you know with it within that research centre. So we want to tap into that. I mean, we're we're delighted that we look. We're looking to, to grow organically as, as 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 a business with you know with the opportunities that are, are coming about from, uh, from 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 new markets beyond the UK. However, the 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 range of uses that we believe that is a significant opportunity. So the idea of you know we 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 have a separate dedicated work stream group within Condimentum right. focused on on all all things around researching. Um, uh, mustard, and again, it's something that we believe we will become the centre of excellence. We'd like uh, 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 to build an innovation centre on this site, where you know, you know, we can we can walk in, we can take every uh, different variety of, of mustard around the world. We can look at it in in its different forms, and we can and we can start to have a a product development lab within within that innovation centre. And that, that's something that we really are keen to make sure we exploit because we believe that opportunity is is pretty significant. You. So you can see here, um, already the team have, have started to engage in what we call sensory analysis, where we're, uh, the team are tasting uh, various samples of, of mustard for mm -hmm. the relative product attributes. It could be, be colour, it could be pungency, heat. Wow. Um, and uh, again, they will, they will score this on a, on a sheet in terms of sensory analysis. So this gives us a good profile yeah. Of, uh, of all of the relevant product attributes. Wow. Good morning. Hello. Hi, this is the Eastern Promise team. We're just in the podcast now. So Kezia is our head of technical. Hi, nice so she's responsible for all of the, 
the quality and the, <laughs> the product quality and, and actually Simon is our head of sales. Hello, so he's the yes. guy that's bringing in all this new customer team. Excellent. So, yeah, so we just say you're, still, you're finishing off the sensory analysis now. Yeah, yeah, we've got some samples to test. Yeah. We're just doing a sensory test just to see yeah. where, you know, how they compare to one badge to another with different you know, flavor profiles and consistency yeah. and uh, yeah, how thick they are as well. Trained sensory panelist. There you so, go. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So now we're just entering the mill here. So this is the mill start. Yes. So we're going to walk up the floors. Wow. So you just, can tell uh, it's all going on above you, can't you? <laughs> all these pipes coming down at various angles. And uh, you can see what's what's going up in the... We can see things shooting through the, these tubes. Yeah, so this is the, the mustard seed and the mustard flower. We basically hang in. Hello. Are we OK to, to go yeah. up just for... We're just going to do a, a walk. This is my permission, promise. We're just Hello. doing a quick podcast. Which one is that on the sifter floor? Right, okay. Well, we'll go up into the sifter floor first, shall we? Yeah, well, yeah. Don't worry if you like, but it's just a little pile of the. Fine. Pile of That's fine. Yeah, okay. Bad, all right, good. Yeah, so what we do is we um, we trans we transfer all of the seed and the flower from the basement floor up to the top floor yeah. by pneumatics. So we pull in through these cows here, we pull in around about 6,000 cubic meters of air that transfer pneumatically the seed or the flower. Mm -hmm from each floor, because the whole point of milling is all about recirculation. So as we mill the product, the seed has to be shaved down to a super fine to extract the flour. Yeah. We do that on a gradual basis. We've got 10 sets of rollers that each set with a slightly different setting in terms of tolerance, and it will shave some of the bran off each time it goes through. And then we'll have a huge sieving system, which sieves, and depending on the particle size, the sieve system will determine which roller stand yeah. to send the product to. So we'll walk through now and you'll see that in action. Actually. Brilliant. Up to the, uh, the steel staircase. What happens is when the seed comes in, I mentioned before, on the other side of that wall is the dryer and the silos. It will dry the seed down to 3% and then we'll send it to one of these three silos. Yeah. Once it comes in, we need to clean it. So we need to remove any chaff or we need to remove um, any small seed. So any contaminants, so black seed needs to be removed. So what we do is we take out all of the contaminants mechanically first on the floor above, then we do it optically. So this is what's called an optical scanner. And effectively this unit here will scan 8 million seeds per minute. Any black seed that is in the seed will be blown out by a, a small jet of air. Yeah. Now what happens invariably when you blow that black seed out, you catch three or four good seeds at the same time. Yeah. So this third channel is what we call a refeed channel. So all of the blowouts give a second chance of recovering some of the good seed. So basically, so you've got 
we've got this fantastic touchscreen powered machine here in front of us that you're just describing, which I could, I wish I could hear better what you say, but we'll get it on the on thing. And uh, uh, Manchester 1878, yes. um, Henry Simon. And um, uh, I don't know why I expected these to be so much bigger than they are, but it does, it, again, it's extreme, very, very modern, very compact. Um, and really, you know, a world away from, you know, the, the, Certainly, Jeremiah Coleman, 200 years ago, would have milled very differently to this. Yes, I bet he would. In terms of the stone mills. Yeah, you know, grindstones. Yeah, grind yeah. But again, this is a super piece of kit that does allow us to. Um, it does allow us to. This will start any in a, in a couple of seconds or so. But effectively, the only reason it stopped now is it's filled ahead of it. But in a couple yeah. of minutes or so, this will start. And you can see how quickly each one of these cameras, there's a series of cameras here yeah. that, that will blow out that black seed. You can see some of the black seed in here. Yes. And then the rejects have come through here. So we'll show you some of the reject product. But it's critically important that what we send to the roller stands is pure, clean yeah. mustard seed. Yeah. And these roller stands here, So effectively, that's the whole seed yeah. that will go through a fluted roller and effectively... Wow. And all we're doing is we're just cracking the seed. So that's not flour at this stage. We're just cracking the whole seed just to allow it to go through the other processes to extract that flour that we talked about. But that's what's called first break, so it's what our first break of seed, yes, a, very coarse, the gene, yeah. a very coarse break of the seed, then it goes along, as you can see we're starting at this point to get to a finer flower, yeah. this is called reduction roller two, so we go through five reduction rollers, Wow. and each time we do that it gets Fuck, slightly yeah. finer, again we're not there yet, no. that's still quite coarse, but then you can see at the bottom here, it's starting to get finer yeah, now, it's, it's not quite there it's yet. It's not what you'd recognise as mustard flour, but you can tell that it's getting there. It's not, yeah, it's very far away from sort of the still bits of the That's seed. That's right, yeah, it's still quite gritty at this exactly, point. This is nice and cool and also nice and quiet, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so we're, this we're is in the control room, aren't we, really? This is the start of the process. I took you outside. The three silos, the white, English, brown, English, and Canadian brown, yep. we're on the three silos outside. Yeah. It then goes through the drying process. So I mentioned about the dryer, dries it down to 3%. Then it comes in once it's dried ready to be milled into these three silos here. So yep. this is the dried product. So uh, just, just for the listener, the, the, we, we, there's a bank of screens uh, in front of us in which, uh, as, as Dave is just pointing out, you know, in, in, in very clear and, and easy to follow for a layman like me terms, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the various silos and the bins that are, are coming in to be milled. And as I say, you've, you've really, the, the investment here is palpable. It really is. Um, and 
the, the pride that the workforce take in here is, is, is again, palpable. Well, because that's really yeah, nice I've not, not, no one, and, and, and it's easy to say this, and it sounds trite, but no one has walked through without a grin. Yeah. Literally, no one's walked through. <laughs> really I mean, nice imagine seeing the way I look. Um, yeah. But no one's walked through without, without a grin. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just fantastic that we've got a facility like this here, you know, as, as, as the anchor tenant on the, on the food enterprise park as well, so close to, you know, a burgeoning sector that is so exciting, I think. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And you've got all these, all these say, you, I'm trying to contextualize the size for people because yeah. I think most, most, if you're not in the business, then most people would think of milling as grindstones. So, yeah. you know, two grindstones right, together. Yeah, and it's yeah. not a bit of that at all. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, what would you say the size of the machine is, roughly each, each roller? I mean, well, it's, it's a, it's a, one point, a 1.2 meter roll, but it's actually around about 1.6 meters wide by around about a meter deep. And we have five sets of those. Yeah. So, and each one of those has two sets of reciprocating rollers. So effectively, whilst there's only five units you can see here, yeah. there's 10 sets of reduction rollers. Yeah. So you can see how gradual that process is to yes. shave the bran off in a very gradual way to remove the bran, the husk, and leave the cotyledon, which is what we call the, the, the pure flour. Once we've extracted the pure flour, and a lot of the magic is actually done on the floor above, which you'll see, which is a big vibrating room that you'll see, which, <laughs> which actually determines, it's a, it's a 208 very fine sieves, yeah. and that will determine which roller stand or which yeah. mill to send the product to, depending on the particulate size. Yeah. So, so it, you'll see that in a second. They look like machines, and this is my ignorance showing, but for all the world, they look like woodworking machines. That's, they do, absolutely, um, a good point, actually. Yeah, they Because I, I, I used to write for a furniture magazine about 20 years ago. Yeah. And uh, I used to go out to shows in like the land. Used to go to these glamorous cities and look at uh, machines for making chair legs, and uh, it looks a lot like a lot of the machines we were showing out there. But uh, yeah, you know, that's you a can good see way the mustard. To it to you, it, you see the mustard sort of say starting a seed and going down and down and down through each each yeah. iteration. So yeah. brilliant. Okay, so that's the that's the, so the whole process right the way through to finished product. So we mentioned about the Dabins once it's in there. It's the first stage. The second stage is to go through the roller stands here that we just talked about. Um, and then once we've done that, it then goes off to either be blended between white and brown, different varieties of mustard. It goes through a blending system here and then into either packing off in those huge bags that you saw outside or the, the topins, the aluminium topins, yeah. which takes. So that's the whole milling process on the three skeins there. Brilliant, fantastic. Those units that you can hear, they're vibrators, again, because of that oil content, the vibrators on each of the up, upstand right. pipes vibrate to stop any build-up of the product in the pipes. Okay. Oh, my goodness, mate. It's like a fairground ride. So, <laughs> so this unit is each door, four doors, yeah. behind each door, there is 26 sieves. So we have four sections here, four sections on the other side. Yeah. Eight sections times 26 sieves. We have 208 sieves, about this size here. Ah, that's what they were. So what will happen is yeah. the product comes from the ceiling upstairs into the section here. It will then be vibrated round through a very fine mesh. Yeah. And each one of these sieves is a different mesh size. Yeah. And that will determine which roller stands, depending on the size of the particulate, 
to send the product to. Right. So this is a critical piece of the, the whole process, Mike. Yes, and you've got like a stack of, of these various different size sieves here, which look, look for all the world like uh, um, tile, you know, sheets of, you're kind of uh, cheating at tiles when you put them on the floor. <laughs> but there's, yeah, it's like a, if I could just describe it, it looks to me, as with my uneducated eyes, like a kind of a, a container crate you put on a, a cargo planes with four, as, as Dave says, four doors, and you, you just imagine uh, behind which there's it's sort of vibrating back to, in, in like a circle, and you imagine that when it stops you're going to get four dizzy teenagers falling out giggling, because it's, it looks like it's something you see in the fairground, but wow, I mean, to get that level of fineness through that, yeah. it's quite a, quite a challenge, but... It's, it is a challenge. Yeah. To try and get the right ship profile, we were knee-deep in mustard flour for about six months. Yes. I can tell you that has been a real challenge to get the right sibbing profiles between the 208 sibs, the number of configurations that we tried before That's we got the sibbing. I mean, yeah. God knows how you did it. <laughs> okay, so this is the top four. Again, on the other side, the silos, the dryer, the dryers, it comes into one of these three bins here which is the 3% moisture. From here, the product will come up through this elevator, go through the mechanical cleaning system, the optical cleaning system, and then it's into the milling, which is the sieving and the rollers. Yeah. What you can see behind you here is a set of cyclones. Everything is moved pneumatically. We use earth to transfer and transport all of the seed and all of the flour. So the, the air is pushed through, the seed comes through, and again, depending on the particle size, that will determine which section of the sifter to send the product to. But these cyclones here are a pretty important piece of kit because nobody else, the other two mills, they move all their seed and flour around mechanically with an elevator. This is a much cleaner way to transfer. Again, it's a technology that has really helped us from the start, to be honest. Fantastic. Those two bins there, you can see, is once the, uh, the sifter and the roller stands have done their job, the finished super fine flour will either be put in the yellow flour mustard bin or the brown flour mustard bin, yeah. ready for pack off. Right. And those bins go all the way down to the ground floor. Right, yes, we obviously at the top of the very tall. This is the packing hall, so this is where on the other side of the wall here, we'll have the mill. So the mill, the superfine flour is milled in the tower. It comes through the wall here, and then the product is packed off into tins, various formats of tins in this, what we call this packing hall. Yeah. So we can take you through the, um, the process flow, Absolutely. if you like. So this is the first part of the packing process where the, uh, the tins are yeah, laid yeah. by a, a robot. So yeah. the robot will pick up a whole layer so what happens is once the tins are fed onto the line, they're then inverted and yep. a jet of air is blown out just in case anything got inside the tin. They will then go along underneath these filler heads. The filler heads will fill the product into, again, whichever format, anything from a 57 gram tin all the way to two kilos. Yep. It then goes through a, it then goes through a check wire system where we check the weights of individual tins it will then go through an automatic capping machine. Nigel will have this going in the next few minutes or so, so you can see it in operation. Yeah. yeah, that's good, that's a good idea. And then we'll, uh, we'll go through the automatic capping machine. Yep. From the capping machine, the uh, tamper-evident label is applied, it's packed into trays, and then it's 
put through a, a string tunnel where the string wrap is applied and then it's palletized. So it's a relatively yeah. simple operation. Yeah, very, I mean, it's, it's, li it's literally sort of round in a, in a, like an oval shape, yes. but done, really. Yes. So it's, it's good space saving, good utilization. See now coming out. It's like the sort of thing that, just to, just to contextualize it, it looks like an industrial uh, luggage scanner from an airport. <laughs> That's right. It but it's, it's coming out, you know, the individual tins get filled and they're coming out in pallets of what, let me think. Trays, trays, of, trays of 12s, yeah. Yeah, in, in, in packs of 12, and, and those are the small tins you can get in, in the supermarket. In the supermarket, yeah. that's absolutely right. So, um, and how does the process differ for the larger ones? Does it? So, yes, he does, he fills here for the larger, for the larger uh, units. So basically what would happen is you would change the line with all the different guide rails and yeah, the they'd different widen. fillet. So basically he can do all formats. We do anything from a 57 gram tin. This happens to be a four ounce, 113 grams. Then we do a pound tin for the US mainly, which is a, uh, a business to business format and then the big two kilo one which tends to go against the US or China. Right, okay. And, and you can see that the rails are quite easily adjustable out to actually. accommodate the larger Just ones. Just to put that into perspective, Mike, yeah. it takes around about an hour to change from this format to say a two kilo. Yeah, so you, you, you need to sort of, you need to sort of program your processes carefully in terms of scheduling when you're going to run which. Absolutely right, yeah. So the forecasting is quite important and again, the changing of the uh, the check wire. There's a metal detector upstairs. So what will happen is when the when the product comes out of the mill, the product the super fine flour is packed into these huge um, aluminium containers here. You can see 46 yeah. and 9. They're called we call them topins. What Nigel will do is take the topin over to this infeed here, and you can see it's at 45 degrees. Yes. The product then will come out the topin up a screw feed up to the platform above us. It yep. will then go through a metal detector into the filling heads and then into the tin. So that's the sort of feed process that we, yeah. that we have. Can I, just for a second, just give you a, give you a perspective on, 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 on how, how the world has changed. A lot of what we've done here is, is good management. I'd like to think so. But I think we've we're also, we, we've had a lot of good luck as well in, in terms of, uh, you know, globally, um, the, 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 the biggest producer an exporter of, of, of mustard, let's you know, start with, with mustard, is, is, the, is, is Canada. Canada produce around about 150 to 160,000 tonnes of mustard seed, which they export not just to the US, but also to, to, to Europe. Uh, so they're by far and away the, you know, the biggest exporter. Um, just to put that into perspective, we'll, we'll process around 5,000 tonnes a year in the UK. So the UK imports quite a significant sum, uh, volume of, 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 of mustard seed from Canada. Believe it or not, the next biggest European exporter is uh, the Ukraine and Russia. Now, you know, it's mm. unfortunate about what's happening there. Yes. H however, um, the, the Canadian crop in 2021 virtually failed. So they, they just produced just less than 50,000 tonnes, so about a third of their normal production which meant they completely used up all of the carryover stock that they had from the previous year. Um, because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, it's very difficult to get the mustard seed out of those regions. Um, so so we, we've had, um, I, I've had discussions direct with the grower groups, with the cooperatives, saying we need to double the acreage. We need, we need, to, we, we need at least an extra thousand acres of mustard land for uh, 2023 and 2024 production. Yeah. Um, now, the, 
the great thing about the grower groups is, is you know, this is this agility I mentioned before, Mike, which is our ability to go direct to that team, to talk about what our needs are. You know, we did say we intended always to grow together. I'm not sure the growers expected such a dramatic <laughs> request and condimentum. However, they have done a fantastic job of, of widening the net to, to farmers beyond, you know, the sort of Peterborough, Fens Corridor region into Lincolnshire and Norfolk. And, and, and now we've, you know, they, they, you know good enough, they, 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 um, the English Mustard Growers Board have managed to secure a pretty significant additional acreage. So, so that's kind of the, the short term, the short term, the, the short term opportunity that exists. And I don't like to talk, you know, use the word opportunity and, and, and the sort of Russia-Ukraine conflict. The fact is, it is what it is. You, yeah, you, you something, you know, we, you, the, the, the gap has to be plugged. And I think if we can, if we can bring on these, we've had some fairly, you know, blue chip, big blue chip organizations. Uh, we've engaged with these. And, and what they like about this model, as I mentioned before, is, is this really simple supply chain. Is this, this business that is owned by the farmers that has this direct link from the farm into into the into the manufacturing facility and out to the customer. It's a really simple supply chain model. That's extremely attractive. Gone are the days when these companies, you know, come in and really start putting pressure on reducing the cost per ton by, you know, ten pounds or twenty pounds. It's all about de-risking now. Yeah. The procurement professionals that come into this room are very much about how do we how do we engage on a de-risk basis. So how do we provide the the supply of the ingredients that they need but again, provide the security and the service into, in, into those companies. So there's a very different dialogue now that takes place between you know, manufacturers like ourselves um, and farmers and, and the, the end user, the, the end customers. Yeah. So, so we would like to think that this opportunity that we've got now to engage with these, these bigger blue chip multinationals, we can show them a facility that is state-of-the-art. I mean, I mentioned about the two other superfine mills. Uh, you know, they were built, one was built 42 years ago, the other one was built 45 years ago. So this is a brand new state-of-the-art building. The superfine mill is effectively a, um, the traditional gravity-fed milling principle still exists today. You know, we, we, we do it in a state-of-the-art way, in a state-of-the-art process way, but all of the principles of traditional gravity-fed milling exist yeah. In, in, the, uh, in the facility we have on this site. And I think we have an opportunity now to, to grow that volume pretty significantly, well beyond our original plans to grow our business uh, due, to, due to global marketplace um, um, issues that have, that, have, that have come about in the last couple of years. The other thing that we're conscious of is, you know, we have, it's still a pretty limited range of, of ingredients that we offer. You know, let's, let's be honest, we, we, we offer, various you know products around uh, around um, what we call the, the dry foods which is you know, mustard in in terms of flour we can do a, a whole seed we can do what's called a crack seed which has a different uh, a different functional contribution to making certain products but it's pretty limited because the other thing we have is the fresh mint leaf comes in we blend the fresh mint leaf with vinegar and salt and water and we cook it and we and we make what I think is the best mint sauce, you know, the Coleman's mint sauce, I actually believe mm. genuinely that it's, it's light years ahead of anything else on the marketplace. However, as I say, it's a pretty limited range. We're just about to invest a significant sum of money to provide us with the ability to make um, not just dry products, but wet mustard. So Dijon mustard, French mustard, whole grain mustard. Um, 
So that's going to that's going to broaden our range of processing capability, yeah. which will bring in new market opportunities. There's lots of customers out there, and tends it tends to be we're we're more focused on a business to business arrangement here. So it's not end consumer. We don't we're never going to process into into you know one two five gram jars. It's going to be more bulk units yeah. for other customers to use in in their own products. But we recognise there's a lot of customers out there that. that that need the mustard paste. So, you know, give you an example: Green Core sandwiches, say for instance. You know, they make millions of sandwiches every week, but they, but they would need the product in its finished form. Yeah. So, you know, that that may be an opportunity. So, we're about to invest in, in that process. Um, but equally, we recognise that there are other possible processes that we would like to potentially progress into. Now, I can't. I can't share with you the details of that yet, <laughs> no, that's but, fine. But, but we really do have the the, the, the great the great thing about the Condimentum, uh, you know, board and and the grower groups, the grower contingent within that board, is that there's a huge appetite for investment here. You know, we've we've we have an option on this on the two acres of land to to, to, to expand our facility into two more acres, which would give us a significant increase in footprint. But we do have a, a huge appetite to invest. In new capability going forward, and uh, I, as I say, it'd be nice if we could get together again in maybe 12 months' time, and I can share with you oh, in more nice. detail what that that the investment plan looks like. But it's pretty exciting, I can tell you now, Mike. That was just a fraction of the full unabridged tour of Condimentum, and you can hear the full version by going to the Eastern Promise feed on your preferred podcast provider and looking up Condimentum full version which will drop at the same time as the main Omnibus edition. It was an honour to be shown around the Condimentum plant, which should be a source of great pride for the region. Whilst it is based near Norwich, produce from across the east of England is brought here to be milled. Thank you to Dave Martin for his time and to the Condimentum family for the warm welcome. And now... According to Careers website Zipia, the UK's top three guilty pleasures are the ordering of food for takeout, procrastination, and... Um, I'll look up the other one later. But what's your choice for a ferret into forbidden fruit? It's time to turn to... Crowd sorcery. Yes, crowd sorcery. Now, as with all true confessions, we need to begin by looking within. Hello? Hello? Anybody there? <clears throat> yes, well, for me, I do love sitting in a coffee shop with a nice pastry, working, writing or sketching. That's me working, not the pastry. Of a similar view is Gemma Hoskins, development manager at the Norfolk and Norwich Festival, who nominates coffee and cake at Cavick House Farm, just outside Wyndham, cavickhousefarm.co.uk. I pass it a great deal, so it's about time I went inside. Dr Mark Eastwood, Director of Internal Audit at Arm, leads a chorus of those pleasure-bound on the North Norfolk coast. Dr Mark loves to pop into Holt for some shopping and lunch. Meanwhile, James Groves, Managing Director at Indigo Swan, IOD Director of the Year and Chair at Co.next, 
of Norfolk Chambers of Commerce, loves Cromer, whilst not neglecting his nearby hometown of Sheringham. To see family as well, of course, who doesn't love a trip? To the snails at Great Yarmouth. Now, I had to Google this as I'm not a regular visitor to Great Yarmouth, and especially as Holly Matthews claims, those snails are scary stuff. A fellow snail advocate is Jamie Dady, factory support operative from Condimentum, who adds, good shout out for the snails. It has to be Bakerholics in Attleborough though, for Jamie. Meanwhile, a double crowd sorcery score goes to Dr. Catherine Gilbert Thick of Acuity Limited for crossing county boundaries and journeying to Felixstowe for a long walk along the beach, followed by fish and chips. Can't beat it, says Catherine, for clearing the mind and feeding the soul. Another Felixstowe fan is Neil Griffin, innovation and high performance specialist and 2am problem solver, who writes, For me and my wife, and now our son, it is Felixstowe Pier and hitting the arcades. Michelle Chambers, business development manager at Chaplin Farrant, is another aficionado of the seaside slots. She says, Always great to go to the coast for fish and chips, followed by playing in the arcades. Was I the only mother to teach their children how to find the coins in an arcade before they could spend any? Ah, Michelle, one can only admire such thriftiness. Clearly, you're training future chancellors of the Exchequer. And at the present rate of turnover, you should be helping them move into number 11 Downing Street by the end of the month. But there's more. Michelle adds, I don't think my life has been quite the same since Woolworths for a pick and mix and the latest in stationary items. Ah, for a fizzy cola bottle and a hole punch. Ollie Matthews again, who helps high-achieving entrepreneurs on the brink of burnout. He loves a breakfast at Logan's in Norwich, where you'll find him consuming a working breakfast on a Saturday. And finally, Tim Robinson, Chief Operating Officer at Tech East and upcoming interviewee on this very podcast. He's talking my language, opting as he does for a massive fry-up at the best cafe in Britain, Posh Pigs near Beckles Aerodrome. A bold claim and a big breakfast. I look forward to sampling it myself very soon. Next week, just in time for Halloween, I want your tales of terror as we crowdsource the scariest places in the east of England. That's <laughs> <coughs> 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 got it. <clears throat> oh. And that seems as good a place as any to leave episode 40 of Eastern Promise. Thank you to Nova Fairbank, William Rook and Nigel Cushion, another forthcoming interviewee. Thank you to Dave Martin and the Condimentum family. And, as ever, thank you to Engineer 49, who can work a mixing desk at speeds approaching 100 miles an hour. But most of all, thank you to you for listening. I'll be back next time. But until then, bye for now. <laughs>